0: The Water Values Podcast, Session 59.
1: Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things
0: Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my son Joey said, I'm Dave McGimsey and thanks for joining me. Before we jump into today's podcast, a quick thank you to those of you who've completed the online listener survey. It's still open, so if you haven't completed it yet, I'd really appreciate you taking just a few minutes of your time to let me know what you think about the podcast and what topics I should be covering. It's online at thewatervalues.com. Also, a quick note on format change. I mentioned this last week, but again, beginning in May, we're going to a a bi-weekly or twice a month release. Uh, So you can expect new podcasts on the first and third Tuesdays of the month. Uh, There are a number of reasons for uh, the change in format, but the realities of getting the work done that pays the bills uh, are chief among them. So starting in May, look for podcasts again on the first and third Tuesdays of the month. Uh, Today's guest is Koo McMahon. Koo is with the Securing Water for Food program, which is a program of the USAID in partnership with With the governments of Sweden and the Netherlands, KU walks us through the history of the program, what its ultimate goals are, and provides us information about what they call their third call for innovations, for which preliminary applications are due by May 22nd. This is an important international collaboration that aims to leverage the water agricultural nexus and the innovations going on in there to help end extreme poverty. KU's a great listen. You'll really enjoy hearing about the projects he's helping support around the globe. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Ku, thanks very much for joining us on the Water Values Podcast. Greatly appreciate your time. Thanks so much for being here. Um, To start off, Ku, could you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water?
1: Sure, David. Uh, So I have been working on environmental science and policy-related topics, I guess, for about 15 years. Um, I started off in undergrad looking at uh, malaria and also lead and child exposure to lead, Um, and then went to, uh, you know, did some teaching for a little bit, came back uh, and went to grad school and focused on hazardous waste sites and community involvement and community participation uh, near them. And so that environmental piece then led on into water and focusing on uh, water quality both uh, in poor communities in the United States and uh, in developing countries as well.
0: Terrific. Now, what uh, what are you doing in water these days?
1: Sure. So I guess right before I got uh, to USAID, I was working on uh, water quality testing and seeing if uh, communities where tests were being done had high-quality water and where they weren't being done, they had high-quality water as well. Um, you know. And then I switched over to U.S. Agency for International Development, where I am now, uh, and started to focus on the water-agriculture nexus, as you know, uh, you know, we are expected to have 9 billion people on the planet by 2050. Uh, we don't have the water resources yet to, um, either uh, provide them with adequate drinking water or to feed them, uh, for that 9 billion. And so as an agency, we're really trying to make sure we can help it in extreme poverty, uh, by addressing these major issues going forward.
0: Sure. And so what are the, what are the programs or the major programs that you're working on within, uh, the USAID, um, your umbrella
1: sure so i am the team lead for a 32 million dollar grand challenge for development called securing water for food it is a partnership between the government of the netherlands the government of sweden and the united states to produce more food using less water and make more water available for food production processing and distribution we do that by having calls for innovation because our belief is that Though we understand the problem, uh, it's going to take not just us but the rest of the world to come up with the solutions. And so we seek those solutions uh, not just from ourselves but from innovators around the world. And so our belief is that uh, solutions can come from anywhere, uh, but we just need them to be implemented in the developing countries where these problems are going to be the largest in the coming years.
0: Okay. And so can you give like a little background, a little history of the Securing Water for Food program?
1: Sure. So it was launched in 2013 in Stockholm, Sweden at World Water Week. Uh, and the first call we made was to look for um, different uh, innovations in either water reuse and efficiency, uh, water capture and storage, or how to deal with salinity and saltwater intrusion. Because what we found is there are hundreds of thousands of innovations that are out there, but very few of them focus on you know how to help developing country either smallholder farmers or industrial practitioners in the food value chain because what we know is that seventy percent of the water globally and up to eighty five or ninety percent of the water in sub saharan Africa is wasted in agriculture and when I say wasted it 's not used as efficiently as it possibly could, uh, and so What we're trying to do is find ways, not just in sub-Saharan Africa, but in developing countries around the globe, to get that water to be used more efficiently so that it lasts longer, because uh, what communities are starting to experience uh, due to global warming is these water shortages, where they'll have three months of extreme heavy rain, followed by nine months of almost no rain. And so... Um, is changing their traditional weather patterns, changing their traditional crop patterns. And so what we're trying to do is, uh, in the water capture and storage space, figure out how to help people store the water uh, in times of plenty uh, so that they can use it in times of drought. Uh, in addition, um, in the salinity saltwater intrusion piece, both because of overconsumption of water in agriculture and because of uh, climatic variation and saltwater intrusion, Uh, due to climate change. Many areas around the world are starting to face uh, more stress on the soil because of increased salinity. And as the soil becomes more saline, the crops are less able to grow. Uh, And so what we're doing is both looking at ways to improve the soil and prevent salinity, but also once once you're at that point, how do you have uh, some sort of solution for that for agriculture, and so two or three of our innovations are focused on just that uh, saline crops to deal with these soil varieties, both in Pakistan, in Egypt, um, and also um, working on it uh, in the United States to go to developing countries.
0: Okay, so you said a couple interesting things in there. First off, uh, on the salinity issue, can you can you describe why exactly that that is an issue? I mean, how is the how is the salt getting into the the soil?
1: Sure. So a few reasons. Sometimes it was already there um, in lower concentrations, but as you uh, intensify agriculture and use water and then the water drains off, the soil becomes more and more concentrated with salt. Um, And then as that soil uh, becomes increasingly concentrated, as the salt becomes increasingly concentrated in that soil, uh, then what we find is that Uh, there's less and less likelihood of the um, soil to be able to sustain um, adequate um, nutrients for agriculture. And it's just over Another reason is in coastal and and delta areas and estuaries, um, as you know, you get natural inflow and outflow of salt water, and that becomes brackish and brackish water. But uh, because uh, sea level uh, are rising in certain areas, especially around islands, Areas that used to have, you know, fresh water are getting contaminated uh, by that brackish or that salt water. And so that then contaminates the groundwater that's being used for agriculture. So uh, in two or three different ways, one because of overconsumption, one because of naturally occurring salt, and then also uh, because of this uh, sea level rise, you've got different uh, ways that salt can impact uh, the soil and agriculture.
0: Okay. Um Okay. And then you also mentioned some of the geographical breadth. You mentioned, uh, you know, Pakistan and Egypt. What are what is the geographical reach? Because we we indicated that, hey, this is this program is a partnership of the essentially the United States, Sweden and the Netherlands. So what is uh, what's the geographical reach that that the program focuses on?
1: Sure. So. Uh, our call for in- All of our calls for innovations have been global in the sense that with the exception of a few countries that the United States doesn't normally work with, Iran, uh, Syria, Cuba, North Korea, applications for the program can come from anywhere. Um, however, implementation must take place in an OECD uh, tier uh, one or two countries. So those are either developing or emerging economies. And so, for example... Uh, It could be anywhere from Bangladesh and pretty much all of Southeast Asia to Central Asia um, to most of the Middle East with a few exceptions, uh, all of North Africa, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, um, as well as uh, many countries in Central and South America.
0: Okay. Um, And so we we also talked about the Grand Challenge. You talked about the first Grand Challenge. Um, And so can you talk a little about, you know, what – what were the innovations that were that, that won uh, funding from the the initial grand challenge?
1: Sure, and so the, our first call for innovations, um, you know, we announced the awardees about uh, six months ago, uh, and so they they range um, from, as I talked about earlier, saline uh, crops, and that was um, our winners. Um, both in uh, Yemen and uh, Egypt with the International Center for Biosaline Agriculture and MetaMeta Salt Farm Textile. And both of these are non-genetically modified organisms. Um, in addition, we have um, one in Bangladesh, which basically use, uses uh, sand and silt that is brought down by the monsoons every year that used to be fallow and not used, and now uses it uh, to grow uh, hundreds of thousands of pumpkins, which people have been able to sell Uh, and have an extra source of income that they didn't have before. And so we've got things like that on uh, either the agriculture side or the lower tech. We've got one called Real Gardening, which basically is a little seed tape which has uh, different vegetable uh, and fruit seeds as well as a basic amount of local fertilizer so that all you have to do is water it. And because of the way the seeds are spaced, it grows more efficiently and and quickly, uses less water. Um, and uh, we also have another salt-tolerant one, uh, a salt-tolerant quinoa in Chile, China, and Vietnam we're supporting. And so that's one type of things so that we're on this crop group. Uh, then we have uh, another type around um, data. And so we've got in Mozambique, we're uh, flying aerial sensors that we're supporting uh, that help improve farmers' ability to know what's going on with their crops. So Because the sensors can see things. Uh, through infrared that we can't see with the naked eye. And so that hopefully will help us and help the farmers use their limited resources and improve their crop yield because they can make quick changes, either adding water or fertilizer um, when they see that their crops are stressed. Uh, We also then have another one in that same space of data, uh, this Trans-Africa Hydrometeorological Observatory. So there are these little weather stations that are connected to these insurance companies. So farmers get cheaper insurance because they get the data from um, these uh, TAMO observatories um, and these weather stations so they can make better decisions and therefore it lowers their overall risk and also lowers uh, their insurance rates. Um, a different set of our innovators are working you know, directly with the inputs to agriculture. So uh, Ibar Engineering in Ethiopia has this broadbed furrow, which is basically a modified plow um, that they've been able to get into the country that allows farmers to use lighter weight weight materials, also allows farmers to get the excess water off of their soil during uh, times of monsoon or heavy rain, and then in the um, drier times, it actually makes the water uh, in the soil um, used more efficiently. Uh, We then Kind of are supporting um, some. Another input is uh, around the actual water going into the crops, and one of those is in Nepal, and that's Akista. It's a low-cost hydro-powered irrigation pump that doesn't require any fuel or electricity. It ju- just uses the power from the river, um, and it doesn't also implute, um, pollute or use any greenhouse gases like traditional diesel pumps. And basically, it allows those farmers in those highlands to pump water uphill for areas that may otherwise be nutrient-rich but don't have uh, enough water to, to farm. And then finally, uh, the last group is around, uh, you know, uh, drip irrigation and greenhouses. And so we're supporting a group called DripTech, which is a high-quality, low-cost drip irrigation sy- system in India. And then another group, which is uh, called MyRain, which has a an app, uh, iPod app almost, uh, that uh, iPad app, excuse me, that you can then use to figure out how to most efficiently lay out your drip irrigation systems so that you have enough people getting um, water at the most efficient way possible. And then finally, on that greenhouse side, we're supporting one in Tajikistan and then also in Sierra Leone and, uh, and in Mozambique to help um, small-scale farming get higher quality crops all um, year round with less inputs of soil and fertilizer and water than you would otherwise, and also it improves the chance that these folks are going to have long term economic um, viability because they 've got extra crops that they can sell in the market
0: sure and so has there been any movement to kind of take take the innovations that work really well in in some of these countries and try and try and make the that innovation more widespread across all the countries in which you work uh, or are the, are these technologies um are are they particular to the area in which they're being deployed i mean I, I could see for example the pumpkin field you mentioned it's built where essentially all the uh the sand and and silt from uh the monsoon season you know where it's, that sand and silt is deposited, that's where the pumpkin field is. Uh, I could see that being particular. But is there is there an effort to get the the technologies that work the best more widespread in their deployment?
1: Exactly. So the the goal of the program is to find innovations that are post pilot that have the potential to scale uh, either globally or in, in a region. And so. As you mentioned, the Practical Action Bangladesh pumpkin example, that one is very region-specific, but we're hoping that maybe it could spread in that region for areas that have the monsoons and the silt uh, to help with small-scale farming. Uh, Real gardening, actually, the one with the simple seed tape, that one is actually being used both in Europe and in South Africa, and it's spreading throughout southern Africa. Uh, Drip-tech is being used in India and also in Central and South America. Uh, Akista, the, the hydro pump, is being used in Nepal, in Spain, and in Ecuador. So many of these innovations are indeed being um, hopefully used in multiple places. Um, and some of them, like the TAMO weather stations, are all our implementation is in four or five countries in sub Saharan Africa. But that same technology, if it works properly, could be used in many different areas around the globe. So, yes, uh, as you say, our hope is that if the technologies prove themselves in the developing countries where we're funding them, they then have the potential for others to take them up and to grow uh, both in the regions they're focused on and globally where, where they would apply.
0: Terrific. Now, uh, to the extent, and how do you get the, um, how do you get the capital to push those innovations uh, to a, a, a larger scale. I mean, where does where's that coming from? Is that funded by USAID and and Sweden and the Netherlands or?
1: Sure. So I think it comes from two or three places. I guess the most important thing is that you know, as developing uh, developed countries that are trying to work in this space, and you know, development is rapidly changing and has been for the last ten or twenty years, where most of the dollars that go to helping you know, these countries develop aren't coming from governments anymore. They're either coming from NGOs or business or from, you know, individuals that at a wide scale are putting, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars into these global uh, developing country economies. And so we recognize that our efforts alone aren't going to be enough, uh, but we hope that our small funding can catalyze others to join in. And so one of the requirements of the program is that any innovator that we fund has to come up with Uh, matching funds uh, for themselves. And so what we often do is we have them either bring in for like our earlier stage, post-pilot stage one innovations, they have to bring in 25 uh, percent in-kind and then 50 uh, percent in-kind for years one versus years two and three. And for our stage two commercialization scaling, they have to bring in cash either from themselves or from other investment sources. So uh, we're, one, giving them money out of our $32 million as the startup money, if you will. Um, and then, two, we're pushing them uh, through our technical assistance and our acceleration support to find outside partners and outside investors to help them get to scale. So I guess to answer your question specifically, we provide part, and then we have them seek out the other part from other sources.
0: Terrific. Now, you mentioned the uh, uh, you had the the first – Grand Challenge. Now you're up to the third Grand Challenge. Tell tell me a little bit about uh, the this third Grand Challenge that is open uh, right now for which you're accepting applications.
1: Sure, and I just want to put in a slight modification of so, so that everybody's clear. The Grand Challenges for Development Program is actually five or six years old, and it actually is older than Securing Water for Food. Okay. Um, there have been five previous Grand Challenges: one around powering agriculture, one around uh, children's mortality and health with saving lives at birth, uh, one around early stage reading, with all, which was called all children reading, uh, and one around how do you involve citizens to participate in their governments, and that was called making voice, Making all voices count. There's actually been one post uh, securing water for food, and that one is around Ebola and how do you have technologies that can be rapidly and easily used to protect people um, from Ebola, especially the healthcare workers. And so the program uh, has, in total, about 15 or 20 partners, uh, but Securing Water for Food is the fifth of those grand challenges, and we've got, you know, the three partners right now of U.S., Sweden, and the Netherlands. Now, okay. uh, but to the the point you were making, uh, we do have separate calls for innovation. So as we as you we've already talked about the first call for innovations uh, released in September of 2013, and we announced the winners of that call last September. Uh, the second call we uh, introduced at World Water Day, and that was the Desal Prize. And then about two weeks ago, uh, well, uh, we had all of. Uh, the finalists for that. And there were five of them who had these specific technologies on brackish water desalination that they would created uh, with renewable energy. And they all used the same water and went head to head in a competition to see who could produce the most high quality water and enough volume of water that would actually be able to help farmers. And so we hope to on Earth Day announce in two days, announce the winner's of that second round desal prize. But as you noted, on May uh, March 9th of this year, uh, we released uh, our third call for innovations um, where we're looking for innovations in that um, salinity and saltwater intrusion, innovative water capture and storage, and also in the water reuse and efficiency areas. And th- that call for innovations is going to be open to the public until uh, May 22nd at 5 p.m.
0: So how how does someone who wants to apply for this or, or get in on this, how do they go about doing that?
1: Sure. So simply they just simply go to uh, securingwaterforfood.org, and at the top of the page on the right-hand side, they'll see a button that says Apply. And then when you click on Apply Now, it takes you into the application platform, and you answer a few simple demographic questions like uh, who you are, uh, what organization you're with, uh, and, you know, what your idea is and which of the three focus areas you're working on, and you fill out an application. Uh, this concept, the way we do the process is we have a concept note about two and a half pages of questions, um, and then uh, once we have gone through and reviewed all the concept notes, we narrow down to a set of semifinalists who then we then ask for full applications. Uh, but, yeah, simply they just go on to securingwaterforfood.org. Uh, they click on, on the far right-hand side, swift third call for innovations open apply now and when you click on that link it takes you straight into the application platform
0: all right and what's the timeline for when this third call uh, you know when when um, will the winners be announced what happens uh, after the winners are announced kind of what 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 are the mechanics of that
1: sure so uh, so we'll stop taking in concept notes on the 22nd of May uh, we will then spend about uh, maybe three four weeks reviewing them to narrow down to the semi and then we 'll ask about up to eighty um, semi finalists for a full application um, and then we'll get until about uh, June or July because it you know these are really big applications take a long time to read uh, and we'll narrow down to the set of finalists um, and those f- up to forty finalists will then go through another uh, set of uh, video teleconference interviews with the a review committee to get to hopefully up to 30 awardees. And so we uh, will announce the up to 30 awardees uh, between November 2nd and 6th at the Amsterdam International Water Week uh, in in Amsterdam. Um, And at that point, they will be full awardees. They will have uh, for a stage one winner up to $100,000 in the first year for a stage two winner up to $500,000 in the first year um, so that they will then be able to go and implement their project uh, in a developing country that they chose.
0: Oh, that's that's terrific. So, when it comes to uh, how this this aid and these projects are deployed, is there any foreign foreign policy type of analysis that goes in? I mean, and and let me give a little background on this, uh, because as I've talked with folks about wash funding, uh, I was enlightened that there. Are a lot of foreign policy aims that can be achieved through, you know, essentially wash aid. And I'm curious if the same, if that same type of mindset, uh, comes into the USAID, you know, securing water for food funding model. If 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 foreign policy aims are part of uh, how these how this money is deployed.
1: Well, and that's definitely true. I think one of the things that's slightly different about uh, Grand Challenge for Development funding, rather than your traditional USAID water, sanitation, hygiene funding, is that uh, the Wash funding has about uh, seven or eight high priority countries, and then another seven or eight middle priority countries. And so most of our development dollars and funding in those uh, from Congress goes to those specific countries. Uh, with uh, a grand challenge we try to make it open because we believe you know because innovation happens everywhere so we both want innovations from uh united states europe and other developing countries that can we uh, develop countries that we can use in developing countries but more importantly we also are trying to improve our ability to get innovations from developing countries for developing countries and so um because we believe that if we're able to boost the innovation ecosystems in that country and produce local, uh, local jobs, uh, there's higher chance of sustainability in the long term. So, you know, the foreign policy objective of eliminating extreme poverty, we think we can more likely to impact if we've got folks working locally, uh, building local, local ecosystems of innovation and also local food value chains and business value chains. So I think that's the overall foreign policy objective we're trying to get at, uh, to, you know, eliminate extreme poverty, uh, as quickly as we can, hopefully by 2030, but really by doing it through both addressing the development issues around agriculture and water, but also helping people have sustainable jobs in the long term.
0: Sure. And th- that is, that sounds fantastic, Ku. Um, one of the things that's been going through my mind as we've talked uh, and you've you've mentioned all these fantastic programs going on all over the globe is how the heck do you manage that? I mean, what is your day-to-day routine like?
1: Oh, it's hectic. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I am, you know, the way that USAID works, we have cooperative agreements uh, with each of these 17 uh, organizations that we gave funding in the first round. And we'll have smaller grants for the desal Prize second round grants. Um, and so, you know, my day-to-day is I've got, you know, one or two folks inside of the agency who are helping me, uh, you know, with the day-to-day of the bureaucratics part of how do you process the awards. And then there's an additional set of folks uh, in the Securing Water for Food Technical Assistance Facility who are helping um, these innovators with their business models, helping with their acceleration support, uh, helping connect them to other investors and other partners around the world to improve the chance that their innovations will accelerate. So there's a team of about seven or eight total who are working in some way, shape, or form. And that doesn't include our, our partners in Sweden and the Netherlands who are working with us directly. And it also doesn't include both the U.S., the Netherlands, and the Swedish embassies and missions who are playing a, a an vital, important role in the work we're doing Uh, with these innovations because they're being implemented in developing countries. And so we need people on the ground there to kind of help us work through the process.
0: Terrific. Well, have I missed anything about uh, the securing water for food program that you'd like to share?
1: So I guess the only thing that I um, hadn't really talked about yet was, you know, what it is we're looking for and what we're not looking for, because I think people need to understand that um, to really understand whether or not to apply. So what we're looking for is innovations that either are from a developing country or have a local developing country partner, innovations that understand their end users and consumers because we don't want to fund technology for technology's sake. We actually want to fund things that people want to buy on the ground. And that can be whether you're an NGO, a sustainable enterprise, or a for-profit institution. Uh, We're agnostic uh, when it comes to that. Um, and I think what we're not looking for is what people would call a traditional development application, in which uh, you are applying for grant funding to go implement a project with a very specified and definite end. And when our funding runs out, so does the project. Uh, we're looking to give you, well, to give organizations catalytic funding so that we can provide you with, you know, a hundred or $500,000. You've got local people willing to buy the innovation on the ground, and you've got outside investors um, of some form, either a family foundation, a fund, or you know the Swift uh, Silicon Valley type innovators uh, and, and funders who are wanting to come in. So, amongst that those different sets of groups, those are the types of people that we're actually looking for for this program. So I think once people understand that and understand that they need to have an innovation that has already been piloted somewhere um, and that has some sort of local uh, partner, then I think. They are prime candidates for us, assuming that they are both focused on the agricultural side and the water side. So a wash innovation shouldn't apply, and an agricultural innovation that isn't saving water should not apply. But an innovation that is either storing more water or using more water efficiently or dealing with salt um, in the food value chain is the type of thing that should apply.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much, Ku. Uh, for those folks who want to find out more about you and the Securing Water for Food program, where can they go to find that information?
1: Sure. So they can just go to www.securingwaterforfood.org, um, and they can get both innovation on uh, information excuse me, on each of the three rounds as well as more information on each of the round one innovators and the round two
0: desal prize innovators that I've talked about during the call. Terrific. Well, Ku, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Have a good day. Well, thank you. You too, Ku. Bye. I hope you liked that interview with Ku McMahon of the Securing Water for Food program. He's just a flat-out terrific guy. Well, a couple of takeaways. First is the deadline on May 22nd to get the short application in for Securing Water for Food's third call for innovations. If you or someone you know has an invention affecting water and agriculture and is working with a local partner in a developing part of the world, this program is for you. Don't sit on the sidelines. Get in there and get an application in. Another takeaway is the salinity program uh, or the salinity aims that Securing Water for Food is trying to get at. And salinity seems to be a growing problem, uh, not just in the developing world, but also here uh, in the United States. For example, there's a salinity control program for the Colorado River Basin, if you didn't know about that. Uh, So wouldn't it be a home run if we're not only helping support uh, people in developing countries, but also you know leveraging those innovations that that help control salinity in in those developing countries if those innovations not only make life better for those folks but if they can help us deal with our salinity issues here at home um, my final takeaway concerns the incredible innovations that are taking place around the world and that are being supported by the securing water for food program who focused on projects in Africa and Asia but also mentions central and south america so if if you go to their website it is really cool just to see all the different things that are going on around the around the world uh and, and some of these really unique applications uh, and innovations that that they're helping support. So it's just a really, really interesting um, interesting, you know, time you'll spend on their website. So I really encourage you to check that out. And that's at securingwaterforfood.org. Well, you can check out the show notes for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod fifty-nine. Leave a comment on the show notes or email me at david at You can also tweet at me at DTM1993, and you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. And don't forget to rate and please review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and any, any other podcast directory on which you listen to the show. And please don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast to sign up for the Water Values newsletter and to take the listener survey, which can be done at thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.